Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Saturday, January the 21st, 2023, a Saturday in Silicon Valley, although there really aren't any weekends here for better or probably for worse. Yesterday, I did a show, my regular weekly show with my friend Keith Tier, who's based in Palo Alto. He's the author of the weekly newsletter, That Was the Week About Tech. The title of his newsletter this week was The Dawning of a New Era. The real question, though, is what kind of era in tech and uh, Silicon Valley? The news it seems to be quite dire. Uh, yesterday, Google laid off 12,000 people. The day before, Microsoft also laid off uh, 10,000 people. Um, this, these layoffs are, are shocking, according to the Times. They're shocking young workers. Maybe uh, older people are less shocked, but it's nonetheless having a big impact. Um, the robots are getting smarter. New York Times is warning us that we are being replaced as writers and thinkers and lawyers and accountants and engineers. We've done many shows on that. Um, Elon Musk continues to be in the news. Uh, the news yesterday in the journal is that he sold his Tesla shares before the company acknowledged weakness, uh, meaning that there may be some inside dealing, which wouldn't surprise, I think, many people. Um, he also acknowledged he's the new owner of tweet, Twitter, that he lies on Twitter, which isn't a great surprise either. Um, and of course, the news on crypto continues to be bad, absurdly bad. Sam Bankman-Fried, the uh, Bernie Madoff of the crypto world, yesterday um, had $170 million uh, seized uh, by the U.S. government. Uh, so this dawn of a new era might indeed be dire. My um, guest today, Brian Merchant, uh, believes, I think, that we're at the air, uh, what he calls in, a, in, a, in a, a recent article in The Atlantic, the end of the Silicon Valley myth. Brian is the author of an upcoming book, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. And he's joining us from, um, not from Silicon Valley, from uh, Los Angeles today. Uh, Brian, how, how bleak is this new era? You suggest in your Atlantic piece that we're all bored with tech. Even, even tech itself seems to be bored with tech. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting uh, juncture that we've reached here. Um, it, it's pretty clear. I mean, just listen to the headlines that you just read. You could read those headlines last week, the week before. Much of 2023 uh, was filled with similar headlines uh, where we're, we're shedding jobs. We're sort of losing confidence. Some big swings that perhaps in another era would have been widely celebrated, like Facebook rebranding itself meta and trying to lead us into the metaverse and then really pretty spectacularly falling on it on its face in a lot of ways um there just seems to be this both spiritual and economic sense that certain limits have been reached um you know i i would argue it's also cultural uh the 
sort of goodwill that Silicon Valley has enjoyed for so long has also run into these limits. And we can dig into each of the different reasons why this is happening now and we're sort of starting to feel it now or it's becoming more visceral now. Um, but it is a phenomenon that we would do well to pay attention to, I think. And, and you know, this is not to overstate the case. I think when I say that S Silicon Valley has hit a wall when it's the end of the myth, this is by no means the end of these companies, right? These companies, uh, many of them have sort of entrenched themselves, ossified, if you will, into monolithic sort of tech companies that will continue to sort of dominate the architecture of our lives for uh, many years to come. But there is this sort of, you know, this in a lot of the key areas that were once sort of lauded and attributed to Silicon Valley, the innovation, uh, the ability to sort of uh, spread goodwill or to inspire people. Uh, these are all wells that are running dry. So this is sort of what I call the great paradox of Silicon Valley at, at this moment of the Silicon Valley giant, um, because they're still immensely powerful, many times still immensely profitable, and yet they have to shed jobs. And yet they are seeing a real lack of inspiration in the products that they're actually putting out. Uh, and this is across the line, right? It's Apple, it's Google, it's Microsoft. Um, in some cases, it's been this way longer than others. But... Yeah, you wrote uh, your last book, um, which was very well received, The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone. One of the interesting points you make in your end of the Silicon Valley myth in the Atlantic is the iPhone has hit a wall too. I mean, every year we see a new iPhone, but they're increasingly uninteresting. They're increasingly the same iPhone from the previous year. Is the iPhone another example of, of, of this new Silicon Valley myth? Yeah, I mean, I think it is now very much sort of a capital P product, right? It's just, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's the same uh, every year, more or less, to the average. I mean, there are still people, there's still a a club of folks who still really enjoy, you know, seeing what the specs are going to be, but to the average consumer, and you're seeing this in the data, right? The uh, amount of time that the average consumer uh, takes to replace their phone or to buy a new phone is, is increasing um, from it's now, I believe at, a, at three years, which before Apple was very good at sort of inspiring consumers to come back to the table and buy more. You know, you could argue it's a great development that people are hanging on to their stuff longer. That means it's lasting longer. It's sort of a, a better, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's better for sustainability. It's, it's better to sort of bake that into how we think about consumer goods. But if we're looking at it as an indicator of how people are feeling about Apple, it's a useful one because they're simply just not that excited about what they're seeing Apple present. Um, so yeah, that I, in, in the piece, I tick through sort of some of the major examples that, you know, Apple became big with, with the iPhone. And that is still to this day, it's keystone product. It is, that's what, that's what made it into the, you know, it was a successful tech company um, at many junctures in its history. It became a world beating one when it, when it launched the iPhone and, and, and drove it to prominence. Um, it has been riding essentially that success ever since. Um, the case with something like Google is uh, search. And, and I think maybe in a more dramatic way than Apple, where Apple's iPhones are the same, they're not worse, 
Google's, you know, core product search, you know, has by a lot of metrics actually gotten worse where people are now picking up the iPhone that they're less excited about having all around. And then when they go to do a Google search, there's more ads larding up the experience. Uh, there's people who kind of have this sense that it's less useful to them. And there were a lot of headlines uh, last year when it turned out that a lot of sort of uh, Gen Z folks were actually skipping Google altogether and just using TikTok to search. So there's a sense. And, and, right. now and, and even Google recognizes that they... Yep. They're bringing back their founders, Larry Larry Page and Sergey Brin, to try and use the new AI from OpenAI to reinvent their product. I wonder, let's go back to this idea of the Silicon Valley myth. It seems to me, Brian, that the myth was that Silicon Valley companies were exceptional. They didn't, they didn't need to conform to the same gravity as traditional companies. Uh, and you mentioned Apple. Uh, Apple has avoided layoffs, according to the journal, because uh, there are no free lunches there. So in an odd way, Apple seems to be the only company in Silicon Valley that didn't fall for the myth. They understood that they were just another company producing stuff that people bought. They didn't uh, create the myth of advertising. They didn't create the myth of the free lunch or making the world a better place. They're just another company. Is that fair? I would say that it if it, it may be fair. I, if anything, they have transitioned into uh, sort of embracing that philosophy more gracefully than other companies. Um, I mean, back in the Jobs era, they could get you know, he could get pretty messianic. He could get pretty you know you know I'm showing you the future and this is and uh, he could you know they had a they had a very very good. Um, ad team they produced a lot of hype but they they did follow up with it right they did deliver um the products that did prove to be so so sort of revolutionary uh to use the to use the jargon um the the, the tim cook era has been you know a lot of less a lot, lot less so it's been more meat and potatoes they've sort of toned down it's meat lot. and potatoes and yet they're a what are they a two trillion dollar company That's there right for the benefit of the company. So uh, I, think I um, yeah. Uh, it, it, I think that if you put um, Google and Meta and Amazon together, they're still not collectively valued any more than Amazon. So Amazon now is exceptionally valuable, exceptionally strong. Yeah. 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 No, Amazon, these, and so, I, so, so is Google. I think, I think the only company that really, really took a dramatic hit in terms of sort of valuation um you know of the ones that we've spoke about so far is is, is facebook meta yeah and you're and you're particularly sharp some people might even say crawl about uh meta mark zuckerberg's reinvention of facebook in your yeah. atlantic piece you say you um you, you call it a dramatic multi-dimensional implosion. You suggest that um, uh, Zuckerberg became so disillusioned with reality that he decided to try to invent a new one. How absurd is what Zuckerberg is trying to do at Meta? You know, I really think that it's extremely absurd. I think that he, you know, has been tired. You know, he's a, he's a billionaire founder, right? He's got, he's has this, product that billions of people around the use 
world use in Facebook. And he uh, has been just, it's just been years and years and years and years of scandals, of, of conflict, of accusations that it's being un uh, used un unethically. Um, and he is my, my, this is my, my read of the situation is that, you know, he, he kind of embraced a sort of a BP style rebrand. I, you know, remember 20 years ago, BP said, we're yeah, going to be right. We're going to be beyond petroleum now or whatever. And then, so it's now we're not, it, it's a well, matter is in a way beyond Facebook. I mean, that was the, the implicit assumption that, uh, that they were leaving Facebook and they were going into, um, the vir virtual reality. It doesn't seem as if it's convinced many people, even right. people within Facebook. What what will happen then with Meta? Will it just become Yahoo? Will it eventually become irrelevant? Yeah, I mean that's the that's the million dollar question. Uh, I think it's more than a million dollars, Brian. I think it's <laughs> several <laughs> billion, several hundred billion dollars. That's right. Yeah, and I, I you know I, I do think that it's currently on that trajectory. Uh, you look at all the polling about how young people feel about Facebook and it's they no one wants to use Facebook anymore. Uh, so they know that that's also part of the reason guiding uh, Zuck's decision for sure. He knows that it's an aging product. It's unexciting. So, you know, leaving it behind for the metaverse certainly probably seemed like an appealing one. I think a lot of people and myself included were really surprised, not by which sort of the uh the <clears throat> sort of the enthusiasm for this project with within the company or at least you know among its executive leadership uh that makes sense you want to sell this thing i've been surprised by just how little there 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 has been it has been pretty astonishing to me to see them roll out their signature products these you know horizons workrooms that just are have quickly become a laughing stock like an outright laughing stock and you know that's of course driven investors away and it, it, it driven sort of uh this fall in in confidence in the, in the company's operations and then that's led to the layoffs and so far uh it's you know only looking like it could Right. Well, one company that isn't a laughing stock is Amazon. They're in the news as well. Um, they've been involved in this continual tussle with their workers about unions. So they uh, earlier this week they they lost their bid to overturn a union victory at a Staten Island warehouse. Your new book, which is out in the um, in the fall, blood in the machine, um, goes back to the 19th century to the original Luddite rebellion against the machine. What's your reading of the struggle for unionization, particularly um, in Amazon, but also in, in many of the other big tech companies? Is this the core struggle of the future? The soul, if you like, the struggle for the soul of, of technology and Silicon yeah. Valley? Well, it is. I think it's the one that is likely to sort of spur the most... Um, you know, potentially, you know, the the most uh, incendiary reaction, the most uh, uh, driven organizing, the most. I mean, when you're when it moves into late, I mean, the things that we've been talking about so far have not necessarily uh, affected sort of the material life of of most working people. I mean, yeah, like there's that we talked about a little bit about the malaise of like looking at a Google that's cluttered with ads or getting bored with the iPhone, things like that. Um, 
you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things to talk about there and why that's, you know, why it may be bad or good for, for business or, or, or so on and so forth. But when you have a company like Amazon that actually has a much larger labor force than any of the other companies we've discussed so far, uh, and you have a sort of regime that has been built around sort of kind of relentlessly uh, extracting, uh, you know, productivity from those workers. You know, we, uh, the, the surveillance, the gamified workforce at the, at the warehouses, the uh, sort of, you know, approaching cruelty in many cases in a lot of observers estimation, uh, you know, not, not allowing for ample time for bathroom breaks, sort of penalizing them if they, if, if cars are too slow on the flex program. Uh, it has been, you know, a really, uh, really sort of combustible arena that they've been working in. And I don't know that they quite recognized it until recent years. So yes, a lot, in a lot of ways, sort of Amazon is indicative because it is doing so much more sort of core, you could say, uh, work it's delivering products that people need and it while it's taken over market share and more people are shopping online to get their groceries to get clothing for their kids and that kind of things amazon has become sort of more central to uh maybe the the, the average working or middle class person's life uh in in a more um you know in just in in, in just a more significant way and so when its workforce sort of re rebels against its conditions it may have more ramifications and i think this is my book is about it, it the, the the modern day core lorries are more about amazon sort of the gig work uh world with right. uber lyft and and all of these as but, well but, uh, and i'm looking forward to reading the book and you'll come back on the show later this year when it comes out blood in the machine the origins of the rebellion against big tech by brian merchant but brian that ended, for the most part, in failure. The workers lost that yeah. first battle against the machine. Oh, Is yeah. there any anything to learn from your book, your historical research, to suggest that they might win this this new battle? Yeah, I mean that's one reason I, I, I wrote it to look at the the corollaries and the differences. And this was uh, a time when the when the when the Luddites who were sort of, you could call them small scale technologists, right? They were working with machinery in their own homes often to sort of, uh, to, to manufacture cloth at, at different phases in cloth production. They were, um, they were working with cotton, they were working with wool. Uh, they were <clears throat> sort of, they were, you know, they were uh, of their day, they were, a lot of them had if not truly comfortable or lavish, but they had good lives where they, uh, where they, where they could often work at home or in a small shop with their with their friends, and um, they this was disrupted by sort of the moving in of the early wave, um, in many cases, sort of the first wave of of tech entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, where uh, these automated machineries could do this work for. Uh, cheaper after a time and it was at this time by all counts worse right like the, the machines could not do as good of a job but they could do it a little more a little more cheaply because they could afford cheaper labor they had still had to have people watching the machines but they didn't need a skilled worker they could do it with a child or an unskilled um itinerant worker um 
And when this disruption sort of put their back against the wall at this time in England, there were, you could not unionize. It was against the law forming a combination. There were the combination acts. So that was, you could not form a union. Um, there was really nowhere else to turn. This wasn't a, an economy that could accommodate thousands of, uh, of jobless workers. There was quite literally nothing for nothing, nothing for them to do. They were being paid, uh, pennies basically to sweep the streets in a lot of cases because they just, no one had any capacity so you couldn't find a job you know as a as a bartender or as a you know in another trade a lot of times this was these were the trades that dominated the uh the, the entire region um so options were scarce uh, there was no real recourse and there was a a, a government at the time and in, in that was being run by some would say quite uh, uh, quite austere. I guess it was one of the very early sort of fully embraces of of laissez-faire. So there was this feeling that we're not going to help anybody. So there was no help from from the government either. Uh, so you had a real recipe for disaster. And well, I'm looking forward, Brian. We'll, we'll do a show uh, when the book comes out. Let's talk uh, briefly about. Labor and um, creative people. A lot of talk about AI replacing people like yourself and me. Oh. Uh, the news today, good news for you at least, is that you've joined the Los Angeles Times as technology correspondent. You had been involved with Vice. I think you were involved with their Terraform initiative. Uh, but Vice is in crisis too. What's your sense? Uh, Vice is for sale. What's your sense? Um, in terms of technology and Silicon Valley for creatives like yourself, journalists, writers, you're both a journalist and a writer. Yeah. Um, do I mean, it's a rough sort of picture, I guess, right now, but especially for digital media, all print, print media, digital media, it's been a rough 20 years. I don't, there's maybe been a few bright spots, but, you know, I don't, really think the picture has changed too much uh to be to be honest i mean a lot of people are feeling the threat of you know chat gpt and stable diffusion and mid journey for images um and i do think that there is real reason to be concerned about that and dolly for yeah. uh, artists yeah yeah, Dolly too. I have a lot of illustrator friends who are who are are totally panicking about the rollout of these these images. And I'll say that the fear it's it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a little more complex. I think it's it's not like there are a ton of on staff illustrator positions right now that are just gonna be replaced by uh, by by the uh, the service or some uh, subscription service using you know stable diffusion or mid-journey to get the images instead of an, uh, an artist um and in a lot of cases folks won't want to use them but what will happen is i think we'll see companies and um vendors using this more as they would maybe in, in an, an image service or uh using it in their sort of corporate materials work that would have gone to artists that maybe a lot of sort of freelance artists would have relied on. Same with writers, you know, writing copy for, uh, you know, for, for companies. There's a lot of sort of freelance gigs like that that are a little, you know, less glamorous, but often better paying than what you could do in journalism that a lot of people really rely on. And I am 
pretty confident that a lot of those will be swallowed up by these tech. Are we going to see, and, and this is a trend that I think we've seen ever since the digital revolution, of the decimation of the middle. There'll always be a high end. There's always going to be um, the Jerron Lanier's and the Michael Lewis's writing big books. You're never going to get a machine that are able to replicate their minds. But you're going to have the decimation of the middle and then this what Chris Anderson called a long tail. He he meant it positively, but I mean it negatively in, a, in an underplayed sort of lumpen digital proletariat. Sorry, I muted myself. Um, yeah, now, uh, yeah, and that's exactly right. That's what it's going to be. I mean, these days, though, the even sort of a lot of the media and the print media is, you know, has art like to see the. The, the ceilings for what you could achieve there in terms of uh, are also being sort of winnowed away. So it may, be, may or may not be more even acute of a sort of an inequality th th than ever before. If we're seeing a lot of people content to sort of uh, consume art and text that's really just uh, generated by these textures. I mean, that is also a real question too, right? Like, I mean, we're still at the phase where it's very exploratory. I think there's been a lot of examples of how it's played out, how it's been uh, pretty powerful, quite powerful. And, and the images do look compelling and they do look, you know, reasonably, uh, you know, so accurate or what what an artist could produce but there's been a lot of cases where there's been a lot of misfires too so i do think we're still in the phase where it's we do have you know to, to wait to see if it's going to be a flash in the pan or if it's going to be something more but that said i think you're absolutely right it is going to it is going to be used as a tool if it can be uh to sort of to sort of hollow out hollow out that middle i mean that's what we see a lot of uh, a, a, a lot of these use cases being specifically aimed at, you know, it's a subscription service with sort of an enterprise rate where they're aiming it directly at a company where they say, okay, well, you can get X number of images and you can use them, you know, in X number of cases, if you pay us X number of dollars. And that, you know, the proposition there is clearly, well, if you used to pay an artist or you used to pay Getty images uh, to, to do this, then we're offering you a better deal because uh, it's maybe slightly cheaper and you can, um, get what you want more quickly. Uh, so it's just a classic sort of um, undercutting uh, uh, procedure right there. Brian, let's end on where you end with your, your excellent Atlantic piece, which was written at the end of December and two or three weeks is a long time in tech. You write, you conclude somewhere in here, big tech's AI generators seem to be insisting amid the Last internet, we spoiled that there has to be something new, something we can use. They shouldn't be so certain. Have you changed your mind over the last few weeks? ChatGPT seems to have had an enormous impact. We've had a number of AI people on the, on the show. Some, like Gary Marcus, are less impressed, but others acknowledge that it, that it really is a, a game changer. Are you still convinced that there's nothing really new? Um, I am. And I'll tell you why. It's because the point there isn't that chat GPT is not capable of sort of amazing things and doing an amazing uh, job at generating text that can be used for various purposes um, with varying degrees of, 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 again, convincibility or accuracy or what have you. It, the, the point I'm trying to make is that 
what it's doing is it's it's being trained on sort of the the vast sort of outlay of of text that has been produced on the products of the previous generation of Silicon Valley, and it's it's it, I found it almost ironic that the great hope of the future for the tech industry is to train its latest tool on all the texts of the old using business models that are that were built sort of to fit that that old regime or that haven't changed much in in the last 20 years proceeding in a way that that is much the same as they did i think it's really notable that none of these companies doing this stuff really made an actual entreaty to artists or artist groups first and forehand that you know we've had so many cases where the disruption that has happened uh, and that has left so many uh, people upset in the last round of of, of Silicon Valley, especially with uh, with gig labor and Uber, uh, we haven't learned any of the lessons from from the large contingencies. So what would your so so I take your point. Sam Altman is the CEO of OpenAI's probably the most interesting and powerful figure in Silicon Valley at the moment. What, He's spoken very openly in the past about using technology to make the world a better place. What would you say to Altman if he's watching? Well, what should he be doing with OpenAI, ChatGPT 3 and 4, the one he's coming out with this year? How might things be different? I'd say, look, you have, you're, now he's facing, uh, he's, he's facing sort of, and not quite an uprising, but he's facing a class action lawsuit. Again, with uh, with artists who are who have just started to sort of organize against this, there's clearly it's a vocal contingent. You have you have art forums that are banning AI art. You have people who are really souring on this stuff now. I, I just tweeted briefly about sort of a protest action that was in a liberal arts school with that had an AI art exhibit that was vandalized. There's a real growing sort of outrage against this. And it's because there was no meaningful dialogue in some cases about, you know, what, 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 uh, about what ChatGPT or what, what OpenAI is doing. Again, they're proceeding like tech companies past of just saying, we're going to do this and you can figure out a way to accommodate yourselves to it. And it doesn't, we, it doesn't really matter if there was no. Yeah. It's a really interesting point, Brian. I wonder that there was a news story this morning that, uh, that, AI chatbots MBA uh, exam pass po poses tests for business schools. Is it conceivable that we'll see a reaction within universities and schools to chat GPT suggesting that they're not only making teachers redundant, but they're undermining the whole essence of a liberal education of relying on students to produce their own work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is going to be the year and, I, and I've, and I've said this before too, that, that we that actually we do see some organized resistance against it because not right now if it's you know if it's just artists or if it's just a segment that you know that 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 has less power then i think commentators politicians regulators can sort of you know treat it accordingly as a niche thing but just last week there was a case where the a, a chat gpt was used to rip off a, a popular substack writers uh article, the guy who appears on MSNBC, big talking head, Alex Kantrowitz, it just kind of ripped off his article. And he found that he had very little recourse. What could he do about it? So now, boom, that's a bad taste in the mouth. We see it address hitting educators. We see it hitting coders. There's a big sort of uh, discussion 
happening on Stack Overflow about about AI uh, code, where it's ChatGPT in some cases has been pretty good at replicating some code. You still have to fix it up, but it is effective enough where there's a fear and there's people who have complained outright that, hey, this is my code. So when you have coders and business administrators and journalists and artists sort of forming this sort of unified uh, uh, resistance against it, then you could start to see some some trouble. And then that's when the conditions are set for a court to be a little bit more primed to say, okay, maybe this is violating uh, intellectual property rights. Maybe this, maybe we'll see a case sort of like sampling in, in hip hop that happened, you know, 30 years ago, where there are stricter rules about what you can and can't do. Um, and it could be undercut. So in a I funny way, thinking about this, Brian, I remember back in uh, 1999, when Napster came out, or 2000, when Napster came out, chat GPT is a is a sort of cosmic version of Napster, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's a great way of putting it, because it, it is it's taking what's out there. It's relying on what people have already created uh, and but doing it at a much greater scale than Napster. I mean, Napster was one to one, of course, but this is sort of vacuuming up everything that couldn't exist without generations of people put, putting their work, putting it online, contributing it to sort of this vast sort of messy landscape that exists out there. Um, and a lot of people are convinced that it is doing so rather unethically and that people aren't being compensated for the work that they did and or their small part in helping to train those models um, that are then going to be used to uh, make a handful of people a, a lot of money. Excellent.